0: You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, paying off debt and real estate investing with Ogechi. T minus 10 Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host Jamila Souffrant, as a money expert who walks her talk. She helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four. Three, two, one. All right, Journeyers, before we get into this amazing conversation, this episode, I wanted to tell you about today's sponsor, Soundtrap for Storytellers. Now, podcasts have literally changed my life. It was through podcasts that I first learned about personal finance and financial independence and freedom. And I was also then inspired to create my own podcast, Journey to Launch. And now I'm able to bring you the type of content and information to help you on your journey to financial freedom every week. And so I know that something like this, Soundtrap for Storytellers is an amazing tool for aspiring podcasters like yourself if you're listening or if you're an existing podcast. So let me tell you a little bit more about it. Soundtrap for Storytellers is a cloud-based, one-stop shop for high-quality, collaborative podcast creation. It provides podcasters with a powerful, efficient, and user-friendly recording and production process. Soundtrap for Storytellers is a comprehensive podcast creation solution to offer all the following features. So check this out. It allows you to record remote, multi-track interviewing with video chat, smart transcribing and editing of the spoken word audio file as a text document, full audio production capabilities, and the publishing of the podcast to Spotify. Equipped with a wide range of intuitive features, Soundtrap for Storytellers allows podcasters to focus on the art of storytelling by significantly reducing the time and investment typically needed to make podcasts sound professional. So to sum that all up, it allows me to give you more episodes. It cuts down on all that work. It helps me do it at a lower cost. And if you're an aspiring podcaster, this lowers the entry, the barrier for you to get started in bringing your gifts into the world. Soundtrap for Storytellers was made available May 14th. So it's available right right now. You can check it out at soundtrap.com slash storytellers. Pricing begins at only fourteen ninety nine a month. And the annual plan is available starting at $11.99 a month. And check this out. They're hooking us up, Journeyers. If you want to try this out for absolutely free for three months, go to Soundtrap.com slash gift and put Journey to Launch in the promo code and follow them on Instagram at Soundtrap. Hey, 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 Journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. I'm bringing you another insightful and hopefully inspirational conversation to help you with your journey to financial freedom. As you know, I love giving you the tips, the tools, the resources, the rocket fuel you need to fuel that rocket to launch to financial freedom. And so this conversation, I think is gonna help you out because I'm talking to Ogechi, who is a financial educator, a money strategist, speaker, personal finance writer, and creator of One Savvy Dollar. And I really loved Ogechi's story because She has a real one about paying off debt and buying real estate. And she's an immigrant. She immigrated here from Nigeria. And so I wanted her to come on the show to talk a little bit about her story, about how she managed to come here and pay off the student loan debt that she accumulated, how she managed to buy real estate. When you hear that story, I think it's such so many insights you can take from it and so much more. She also created a company called One Savvy Dollar, which allows you to find what companies offer tuition reimbursement for your education. So I just love that part of her story that she's an entrepreneur. So I really can't wait for you to get into the conversation. This is episode 97. So if you want any of the episode show notes, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 97. And as always, follow me on social media. I'm at Journey to Launch on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. There you can let me know what you thought of the episode. Let me know if there are any takeaways or aha moments. I love, love, love seeing your feedback. As always, if you listen to this in Apple podcast, that purple app on your phone, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. I read every review. Sometimes I even read them on the show. And as always, continue to share this with your family and friends. Let's recruit some more journeyers, as many journeyers as we can. So we can take as many people as we can on this journey. Okay, so let's hop into this conversation with Ogechi. Hey, journeyers, want to bring you this conversation with Ogechi from One Savvy Dollar. Ogechi, I wanted to have you on the podcast because I'm super impressed that you were able to pay off $26,000 of debt in three years. And you originally are not from the United States. You immigrated here and you have a wonderful story. So I wanted you to share that with journeyers. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jamila. I'm glad to be here. So I'm an immigrant, like you mentioned. I came here in 2004. I came here legally, got my papers.
0: Let's go back a little bit to where you came from. <laughs> so which, where did you um, come from with your family?
1: Nigeria and I migrated here. Because my dad was here. He's been here. So I migrated here to meet him. Okay. Right. That was in November of 2004. And then I started school in the fall of 2005. Went to community college. Then went, got my bachelor's and then moved on to my master's. And in the process, that was how I acquired my debt. I was able to get some financial aid here and there. But, of course, it didn't cover everything. So I still had to take out student loans. And by the time I was ready to go for my master's, of course, your financial aid doesn't cover you for grad school. Financial aid, strictly like the Pell Grant and the SE, I think SEOG is for undergrad. Um, So really, by the time you get to grad school, you're on your own. So I had to think and I'm like, well, how am I going to pay for school? And so I had to do some research and I found a company that would help me pay a portion of my master's. Again, it still didn't stop me from taking out some loans. I just took out less loans than most people with the same degree do.
0: Okay. So what did you end up going to school for?
1: In undergrad, I majored in communications and in grad school, I majored in accounting.
0: Okay. And I think you had said when we were talking offline that you were also considering law school at some point, right?
1: Yes. I was going to go to law school. That's why I have a bachelor's in communications, and I did a little more research. I actually, interned at law firms, at two law firms, and I polled lawyers to find out if they were happy. And most of them were very honest with me. They said if they had a choice and if they could go back and change to, you know, go back in time, they would do something else. So I decided maybe, just maybe, this isn't for me. Besides, um, most of them were in debt, and. On the other hand, I pulled accountants. Accountants seem to be happy. They see, I mean, they know what the year looks like. They know the first four months in the year is super busy. And then after that, they have their whole lives. I mean, not that they're not working. They're just not as busy as, you know, January through April. And there seems to be an ease to set up on your own. Like it's easier to set up as an accountant on your own. The schedule is more flexible. Let me put it that way. So... I decided, you know what, I don't have to study law to be happy. I could do something else and be equally as happy. Besides, my company, the job I was working for, they were going to pay a portion of my um, master's if I worked with them. If I went to law school, I wouldn't have been able to work for them. So it was essential for me to stay with the company in order to get the master's degree paid off.
0: Right. And, you know, I love that you thought of it that way, because one, you're right, like going to law school is expensive and the amount of years and time. And so I've interviewed lawyers on this show and they typically have like a lot of debt. There's no
1: guarantee you're going to earn six figures when you get when you get out. Right. The salary and the income are just not on the same scale. Even if you earn six figures, there's a chance that you're not bringing home Six figures at the end of the day. So these are things a lot of people don't really put into consideration before jumping into a specific career. The return has to be worth the investment that you put in. And the sooner you can get that return, the quicker, uh, the better it is for you.
0: Mm -hmm. And like you said, like, it's so important that you actually talk to people who are working in these fields, because it seems like glamorous from the outside. And I don't know about you, but especially if you know, if and I was and you know, it seems this to be true that immigrant families like they push you to like go into the professional services, right? Yes, it's like, you're gonna like, just bring a lot of pride to the family. And so it's like lawyer, doctor, exactly, anything like where you're, where you're a higher professional, but those same professions carry a lot of debt Um, once you get the degrees.
1: Exactly. Exactly. There's this, you know, the, this whole thing about prestige and bring, you know, the family name and, you know, you have all of that in your head and you're, but you're the only one who has to, in some ways, carry the responsibility of the decisions that you make. You know, so it, it gets tough sometimes, but I'm glad I was able to poll people. I'm glad I I did the internships and I just realized that, you know what, there's other ways to this. I can do other things and be happy. And I'm, I'm thankful that the people I polled were honest with me. So it made my decision easier.
0: Now, I'm just wondering, just culturally, like being Nigerian, if like that you feel like is a pressure for Nigerians, that, especially if they come to the United States, like how did your family feel about you like, switching and not wanting to become a lawyer? Was that like a big deal for them?
1: It was a big deal at first, but ultimately I just let them know that it was my decision. Every Nigerian you meet, you meet. we're very much into grades and schools and academics and stuff like that. They, it's like drilled into you. Where I come from, there's only lawyers or doctors or engineers anything else is like, "Eh." (laughs) like, no, no other profession or career exists. You have to be a doctor. You have to be a lawyer. You have to be an engineer. Okay. Then you you could also be an accountant. Yes. Outside of those four, you're quote unquote useless. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I did feel like I was letting people down I did feel like that at some point, but I really, and this is where having, you you can fool a lot of people or tell lies to a lot of people, but you can't lie to yourself. I believe in having honest conversations, honest conversations with yourself, just a quiet moment. Is this really what I want? You ask yourself those hard questions and you answer them to yourself. A lot of people skip this process and end up doing things to please people. Ultimately, I would have been the one in law school. I would have missed out on work because when you're in law school, you really can't have a job unless you're going part-time, you know? So there's kind of like a few years, like three years of lost wages and taking the LSAT and then, I'm sorry, taking the bar exam. And then it was just a whole process that I just, I'm like, this is going to cost way too much down the line. And it's
0: not for you. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm curious, because I'm sure you, you know, you have other friends that are Nigerian and who did go that route. Do you feel like and like you said, you just feel like it's either a few professions that you're kind of pushed into or you're guided to do? Do you find that then the stress of the debt or just the amount of loans that you have, you have your friends have, like is like a lot compared to someone who's not, Going to school for these certain professions. Although, even if you're not going to school for to be a lawyer or doctor, you can still have hefty loans. But I'm just wondering if that prestige, that ideal like career and, you know, having that label also burdens you on the other side that people don't talk about in your culture.
1: For me, I was okay. I'll be honest, because accounting is just maybe in their eyes or they think. That um a lawyer is of you know has more prestige a, than an accountant, I don't know, but for me personally, I was okay. Now you have to understand there in Nigeria we go to law school. law school is kind of different. here you you have to have a first degree, so that's four years already and then you go to law school for another three years so and then take the bar to do all of that. so you're looking at approximately eight to nine years roughly. Where I come from, you have a five-year degree, and then you go to law school for one year. It was different. And most of us back home, we don't have loans. We don't take loans because our parents pay for school. So the whole system, I was already on the track back home to go to law school, to get a career in law. I came here thinking it was going to be the same thing. Oh, I'm just going to just continue. Only for me to find out that, oh no, you need to have a bachelor's degree. And your bachelor's degree could be in anything, in anything. You could study music, you could study art, you could study architecture, you could do anything, and then just take one exam, the LSAT, to get into law school for three years. That's where they start teaching you the legal stuff.
0: I'm happy we talked a little bit about that background of that. All right, so now you have graduated from school and you have. Debt, you have a lot of debt. So, how did you manage to get out of that in three years? So, it was $26,000, right? Right.
1: So, you know, I was like everyone else. You just go to the um, bursar's office, you sign off on the loans, you don't really pay attention till you graduate and they send you that notice that, okay, your loans are coming due. So, I finally signed into my NailNet account and I looked at I'm like, whoa, that's $26,000. Of debt. And, you know, everything's broken down in categories. You have category A, category B, and C. You could have like, you know, like six different laws with six different amounts and six different interest rates and all of that stuff. So I started off by being aware of how much I owed because right up until that point, you know, the numbers were just floating around in my head. But seeing it all in the system was okay a confrontation that, okay, this is what it is. That was subsidized, unsubsidized, and all that stuff. I um, said, okay, this is 26000 I actually didn't set off to pay it off in three years. It wasn't a planned plan. I started making payments in April of 2014 and slowly making monthly payments, but I just felt like it was such a burden. I felt like I was tied to something, Maybe I can't quite explain it, but it just felt like this this chain, this ball and chain just following me everywhere. I have this student loan debt. I have to send in this payment every month. And I was like, there's got to be a way to um, pay this off. So I started off with anything you do, you need to have a strategy. For me, it was one of two things. You could either choose to create a budget and then look at your spending and say, OK, I'm going to cut back on these small things, like maybe 10 small Things in my budget, or I'm gonna cut back on two big things to save more. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I decided to go with cutting back on two big things, and for me, those two big things were housing and you know getting a new car. My loan was twenty six thousand dollars. A car, a new car, would have been twenty six thousand dollars as well. So instead of getting a brand new car after graduating, I just decided not to. I kept driving my Camry. It was a 1999, and it was in great condition. That car took me everywhere and back. So I decided, okay, just don't move from your house, from your apartment. Don't get a bigger space and don't buy a new car, and just keep saving aggressively as you can. Because, okay, I, I did graduate school and my income went up. And one of the first mistakes a lot of people make is to increase their lifestyle as soon as their income goes up, you know. Everything else goes up. Oh, I need a new wardrobe. I need to move. I need to um, move into a bigger place. I need to get a brand new car. And before you know, you're back to square one. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you know what? Just keep living like you are a student.
0: Can I hop in and ask what your career was like? What you started doing, and then how much you were making at that time?
1: At the time I graduated, I was working for the state as a program examiner. At the time, I was earning fifty one thousand.
0: Okay, and you were in New York.
1: Yes, at the time I was fresh out of grad school. I was making fifty one thousand. I just decided, you know what? Don't increase anything. Don't buy a new car. Don't get anything. Just keep living as you as you lived in grad school and save your money. And I just kept saving, saving aggressively. Now some people pay off their loans by you know throwing extras into the loan. I made my regular payment and then one day just made a balloon payment and that was how I got rid of it.
0: Okay, so you made the twenty six thousand lump sum payment or whatever that was to finish off the loan?
1: Yes, I made a twenty thousand dollar payment. Twenty thousand one hundred I believe.
0: Oh so for you, what was the reasoning behind that? Why were you were you putting it into an interest bearing account that like was gonna give you more interest than what the student loan was over time?
1: If I wasn't really putting it into an interest-bearing account, I just saved the money. I just saved as best as I could. And at the time as well, I didn't put in any interest-bearing account. I just saved.
0: That's a good strategy um, in a lot of ways, because that's the same thing I hear about like paying off a mortgage. So typically the mortgage, the student loan debt are going to be like your lowest interest rate debts. And so they'll say if you have consumer debt, like the car note and the credit cards where you can be paying a lot. know, tackle that first. And then when it comes to like student loan, but especially housing, I hear this a lot with mortgages, because I'm on like a mission also to pay off our mortgage early. You know, it's a lot of money, right for a mortgage. And so you can be funneling all your money right away, like every month into paying down your mortgage, but then your money is not liquid when it's like in a mortgage, like you don't have that anymore, whereas you can be investing that in the markets and earning more interest. And so I've heard of this rule of thumb, which I actually like is that instead of plowing extra money into the mortgage, plow it into an index fund or whatever account that's going to earn you more than what your mortgage interest is. And that way, let's say now in five, 10 years, you have now accumulated enough money to pay off the remaining balance of your mortgage you can make that decision saying, okay, do I wanna pay off the mortgage now or I have this lump sum now that has accumulated to this large amount that I can keep investing or not. And so it's just a matter of your availability of risk and how much cash you want on hand. So I think with the student loan process that you did, it's smart because what if maybe within that time you would have found another opportunity or investment opportunity that you wanted to take advantage of It could have been, you could have chose at that point what to do with it.
1: Exactly. And also there was a bit of, I'll be honest, there was a bit of fear, not fear, but fear of losing the money. What if I invested in something and it didn't work out or I invested in something, but I needed the money right away. So for me, it was just really having my money available. And the day I called, it was was on my birthday, the day I called to find out the balance on the loan. Because I said, the the one time I'm ever going to call Nelnet and they give me that balance, I want to have that balance in my account. And when she gave me the amount, I looked, I had the exact amount to pay it off. And I said, I gave her the information and they just applied it to the loan. And I felt so free because that was, till today, I think that was the best birthday gift I could give to myself.
0: That sounds amazing. Okay, so I actually have a question about that because I saw... Recently, someone said, they said this like actually on um, Twitter that they had the money in the account. Like they said, my student loan or they said something. Yeah, my student loan is, I have the exact amount of money lump sum to pay off the student loan, but they just didn't want to. They were like, they're gonna, I'm gonna keep sending in these minimum payments like because they liked seeing the lump sum. So I know you said that it felt good once you paid it, but I would imagine that having so much money, like seeing it felt good. So did you feel kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm about to just like, Basically, not throw it away, obviously, but you're about to give it up and not have this lump sum anymore. Were there any angst around that?
1: No, there was no angst. I was free. I was free, free from U.S. Department of Education, free from Nelnet, free from free from everything. That loan is dead and buried. Like, there is nothing you can do. I, I pulled up my um, credit report the other day. I still pull it up every now and then. And I see zero all through, and it's on my birthday. I felt free. A paid off debt is a guaranteed return on investment. Even though the debt was paid off and I didn't have the monies anymore, I'm till today, I'm still paying myself. I was supposed to pay it off in 10 years. So they put me on a standard repayment, a standard repayment plan. And because I paid it off in three years, personally, I just see that, okay, I have seven years left of the 10 years. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I'm still paying myself that student loan, actually, but I paid to myself and I'm aggressive with that. So, no, I'm I'm free from the debt and there's nothing anyone can do to bring it back. Right. I mean, to resurrect that loan, I'd have to go back and apply for it. And no. So you know if you if you have that you know way, making the minimum payments where you have the money, my student loan interest rate was at six point i think six point eight percent by the time you averaged everything. I tried to refinance, but it didn't make sense it would only it would have been a two dollar two dollars saving it didn't for all that paperwork it didn't make sense for me to refinance, so I just left everything as is and kept making the payment. now, my payments weren't really. You know, it was $294, about $294 a month. But I just felt some type of way, just making that payment every month. It's been two years since I paid off the loan. And I can't tell you how I'm living my best life. Like, honestly, Honestly, I feel free. I make certain decisions. And that was about my, that was my only debt per se. I don't have car loan debt. I don't really have credit card debt. And then, okay, now I have mortgages, but I'm free. I'm free from the government, free from Nelnet, free from everyone. So I wouldn't have it any other way.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Now you threw in something, so we're going to have to talk about it. And I know this about your story, but you said, now I have mortgages. So that's another thing that you were able to accomplish. So let's dive deep into like your real estate ventures and investments. How did you get started in that?
1: Oh, um, my real estate, huh? I bought my first home at 21. That was fun. That was right around the mortgage crisis. I mean, banks would have given anyone with a pulse a mortgage back then. The story is a little crazy. My first home is in Atlanta. I literally hopped on a flight, told no one, and I went there. I've I've always desired to own stuff. I just channeled that energy into owning homes. Or owning real estate because it's real. If I had to choose between buying buildings versus stocks, I think I'm more biased towards real estate because it's something you can see, it's something you can touch, it's something you can drive by versus paper assets. So I, I, I bought my first home at 21. Um, I still own it till today. Bought the other one, the next one, at 20, right before I turned 22. So I basically took monies from the first one and used that as a down payment for the second.
0: Okay. All right. So we're going to have to go back and like talk about that. So why Atlanta? So you were in New York at the time. And, and where was this in the process of your student loans? Were you still in school? I was getting my
1: associates at the time. So technically, yes, I was still in school. I chose Atlanta because I don't know, I just felt I had been watching a lot of TV. And I noticed that a lot of stars were from Atlanta. a lot of black Hollywood stars were from Atlanta. There was Sierra, there was Luda, there was, you know, all these people. And I'm like, hmm, I think that's like the black Hollywood. I just felt that something would be going on there or that it's a, you know, it's going to be a great place to invest. And I also had intentions of moving there, even though I never did. But um I had intended because it was, it's much warmer in New York Mm -hmm. and much more laid back. So I said, if there was any place I would move to outside of New York, it would be Atlanta. So I said, why not invest there first? And that was really the rationale.
0: And how old were you when you came to the United States? I was about 18. Yeah, 18. 18. So you came here at 18 and then you bought your first property at 21. Like, That's so crazy. That's so good. All right. So how? now I need to ask you, how did you get the money to buy like the property? How, I mean, if you can share kind of just, you know, as much details as you feel comfortable.
1: Let me put it this way. I was really able to get the house because of good credit. I was building my credit without even knowing that I was building credit because when he finally, when the the loan rep on the phone said, oh, I'm going to run your credit, you give me permission. I was like, yeah, I don't know what that is, but okay. So he pulled my credit. He said, oh, you have a 721 credit score. I was like, oh, okay, that's great. At the time, you see, you have to understand the timing of this purchase. It was right before the crisis. So everyone, so you could get 100% financing. You could get 5% financing. You see what, 95% financing. So basically banks were giving loans, recklessly, but they were giving loans. So I didn't have to put much down. I only put like, I believe 3% at the time and came up with closing costs. I was able to save some monies from my job because I was working at the time and just over time put my monies together and saved towards purchasing my first home. But I've always, always wanted to own a property. Mm -hmm. I think the major thing for me was desire. I really, really wanted to own a home. When you're obsessed with something, No matter what, you'll find a way to make it happen. When you're obsessed with achieving or accomplishing something, you're going to do everything in your power to get to it. I saved money and it was just a good time. Mortgage companies weren't as strict as they are now. Now, oh no, you can't even get 100% financing or 95%. You got to come with your your 20%.
0: Well, I can relate to you so much. And I'm assuming it's probably around the same time I bought my first property because it was the same thing. I always say that, you know, the mortgage crisis and like the big, the real estate bubble, well, let's say, yeah, the real estate bubble that led into the crisis, that actually was helpful for me because when it came time for me to put down for my condo, when I first graduated school, if they would have ran my information, so same thing, they were just giving out mortgages. So I did a no doc closing. So they didn't require any documents to close alone. And if they would have asked for documents, they would have saw that I could not have really afforded this apartment that I bought. But, you know, I was banking on earning more money and my savings to pay for it. But it literally also helped me like the fact that they didn't check Help me get in, get my foot into the door. So very similar to your situation. Exactly. Okay, so how did you know we're in Atlanta? Did you have someone in Atlanta?
1: Jamila, it's a crazy, crazy story. I was just looking at this website. I was online just surfing the net. I saw a bunch of houses. I looked up the person who, who owned the property. You know, me and him were talking for a few weeks. And then he said, if you're serious, the best thing to do is to come out here. That's the only you. You have to see the places if you're serious about becoming an investor. It was Memorial Day weekend. I didn't even really know anyone. Let me be honest. I mean, since we're we're here, what I did was risky. I look back, the woman I was at 21. I'm like that was that was a lot of risk because anything could have happened. Anything, and I mean anything. And I was so afraid of telling anyone. So I didn't tell anyone. I just got on the plane and I and I went to Atlanta. I mean, I read I hear I listen to stories now of people going places and just never coming back. And and I realized how much risk I took. But at the same time, I had told someone close to me that I wanted to go to Harvard and they laughed at me and I never applied to Harvard. And right there, that person killed that dream. So I was afraid of dream, dream killers. Because had I told someone, oh, I want to own a home, I want to buy a home, I want to buy a home in, in Atlanta, they might mean well, but somehow all their voices would have been in my head and I probably would never have gone for it. So I flew out there Memorial Day weekend. I met with the seller. I, it was to even tell you how naive I was. I didn't even book a hotel. I didn't even book a place to stay. I didn't have any. I just assumed that, you know, once I landed, I'd be able to find a place. Not true. I ended up driving with the cab guy, the the guy who picked me up from the airport. We ended up driving till 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. in the morning because we couldn't find a hotel. Someone finally checked out. I was able to lodge in a Super 8 hotel. I probably caught like an hour or two of sleep, contacted the seller, told him that I was in town, and he said, okay, he came, picked me up. We went to look for, went to look at his properties. He showed me like, you know, some condos or, or is it co-ops? And I remember looking at them and I said, oh, oh no, this isn't what I was expecting. I said, do you have any more? He said he has one more place, but it's not within my price range. I said, okay, that's fine. I'm, I flew all the way from New York and I'd rather just see everything, see as much as I can see while I'm here. And he said, okay. So we went to that place, and the moment I saw it from the outside, I said, "This is my place." Then we went in, and I was even more convinced. I said, "Yep, yeah, this is it," and that was
0: it. But what what about it?
1: It was a three bedroom. It well, it is a three bedroom with um, an extra space. You can't have a bedroom in there. You could just use it as an office space. The three bedroom has a skylight, has you know, like a backyard with the deck, and it was just simple. It was just very simple. And I just walked in and I knew that this was meant to be for me. And that was May 25th or Memorial Day weekend of 2007. By July, July 25th of 2007, we closed on the property.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, when he said it wasn't your price range, now I'm like, I'm just, I have to keep digging. How did you get to afford to do it?
1: Because I told him that I was looking for a one bedroom or a two bedroom, but he said it wasn't in my range, like price or like cri- my criteria. You know, I said, it's OK. Let me just see it. And the rest is history.
0: Well, and while you're talking about how naive you were, you know, sometimes that naivety is what pushes you forward, that allows you to be successful because you don't know what you don't know. And if you do know all the things stacked book against you and all the negative, then you won't, you probably wouldn't do it. Exactly. So I find that that innocence that, you know, you had, and even, you know, I think that what a lot has had, even as like infants, right. And children who like I, my little kids, right. They do things. I'm like, why do you think you can do that? Like, that is so crazy, but they don't have those limitations that we do as adults. And so, and I love the fact that you said, even though it was risky for you to go, it's more of the dream killers, like, and the naysayers, and, you know, they might mean well, but it's more of their own limitations that they're projecting on you, right?
1: Because they couldn't do it, or they've been, they're, they're afraid to do it. They'd project those insecurities to you. So I just never told anyone. And So so I think it's only about a handful of people who know, okay, well, people in my group know, in my Facebook group do know, but yeah, that's
0: it. And then you use that to leverage to buy another property. Did you do like a refinance to take money out?
1: Yes, I was able to pull money out from the property and then bought the second one. But this time I made sure I stayed in New York.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Well, so that's another thing. So people will say New York is very expensive. Did you go outside of like, you know, Manhattan and Brooklyn?
1: Yes, you have to go outside. I've You know, a lot of people tend to say, oh, for real estate, I can't get into real estate. I live in a high cost of living state. I'm like, no, you have to look around. There's some parts of New York that are not as expensive as down here. If you go upstate, there's a whole bunch of properties that you can pick from some of them. You have to do some work depending on what you find, depending on what's available in the market. But the mentality, you have no limits. And even if you can't find something in the state that you live in, check the next state. There are states that you can drive into. You know, if you live in California, well, there's Arizona, there's Las Vegas, Nevada. There's always some place. Everyone says, oh, I live in a high cost of living. Well, that's one state out of 49 other states. Find something. Don't tell me you can't find a place to invest in, you're just not looking hard enough.
0: Mm-hmm. So, one of the things now that you're doing with your platform, One Savvy Dollar, is you're also teaching other people how to get out of debt, student loan debt, and connecting them with companies that are able to pay for tuition. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes.
1: So, like I said, I found um, a company that would help me pay for school. When I realized, you know, it just hit me one day that there's no one place where people could find this information. So. Why don't I just put together a resource that would help people? And you see, everyone's, I I serve as a personal finance platform. One Savvy Dollar serves like 18 year olds to 45, I would say 45 year olds. And in that age, everyone is at different stages in their lives. Some people have, some people are trying to get into college. Some people have a college degree. They have some debt. They know they need a master's to get ahead, but because they already have undergrad debt, they don't want to go for a master's. So they just because they'd rather someone else pays for school. So I decided, you know what, just create the the free resource, do the research for them. I want to take people from how do I pay for my education to okay, now I have this company who's going to pay for school? Which one do I go with? And not every company's um, tuition reimbursement is not the same. You could find a company that's going to offer you $7,500, but it begins after you've worked for one year. Or you could find a company that's going to give you $5,000, but it's from day one or higher. So basically, once you sign into One happy Dollar, you're able to see companies that offer. You will only see companies that offer tuition reimbursement. How much they offer, what um, what grades you need to maintain to um, keep getting the reimbursement, contractual obligations, if any. There's a few other criterias, but basically all the information you find in there would help you make an informed decision. And we're just trying to ensure that you graduate with little to no loans. There's a huge difference between a $10,000 student loan and a $50,000 student loan. Yeah. So we just want to make, give you a a, a chance in life that you don't, you graduate with reduced to no loans.
0: Right. And I like that you, you say like a lot of people, they get stuck because they know they need this higher degree or education within their field. Right. That's if, you know, they know this field or they want to switch fields Mm -hmm. and they do, they want to get a higher degree to help with that transition but they they already have student loan debt. And so it's just like, but I don't want to get into more student loan debt. What's the best thing that I can do? So I love the basis of your platform because that's amazing. Now, are there companies that will retroactively pay your debt? Not
1: very many. Not yet. So Not yet, not yet. Um, there are companies that will pay towards your student loans, but it's, it's only like 4% of companies in America versus 53% of companies in America that will help you pay for school. So those companies that will help you pay, you know, they might offer you like maybe 120 a month to pay towards your student loans, But yeah, it's not very many of them.
0: Right, right. Well, I think that's an amazing resource. So I'm definitely going to put that in the show notes for listeners to check out. But I also want you to let people know where they can find you. But before you do that, I just want to say that I'm so impressed by (laughs) your story because as you heard, Journeyers, she came here at 18 years (laughs) old and three years later bought her first property. And I just hope that people got a lot of encouragement and just inspiration from you. And so please let everyone know where they can find you and where they can learn more about the One Savvy Dollar.
1: You can find me on Instagram at One Savvy Dollar. You can also find me on dot com. Just shoot me an email on IG. You'll see because it's, it's a business page, so you'll be able to shoot me an email or you could just go on one savvy dollar. You can send me an email at hello at OneSavvyDollar.com.
0: Awesome, awesome. And again, everyone, I will link that in the show notes so you can um, get in touch with Ogechi. So Ogechi, thanks so much again for coming on the show and sharing this information with the journeyers. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. had a great time. <laughs>
0: i really hope you enjoyed that conversation with ogechi i'm super inspired by her story i'm always amazed at just the willpower and can-do attitude of people i mean if you're looking at why people are successful why some people make it and why others don't you know there obviously are sometimes reasons outside of our control. But the things that we can control, so our focus, what is inside of us, our attitude and our discipline to reaching our goals, we can control that. And so I love bringing on people who show how when they put their mind to something, they do it. So I hope you're inspired by that episode and you got some good tips. Once again, if you want the episode show notes, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 97. There you'll get the links we mentioned or any other resources that we mentioned. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is completely free. So when you subscribe to it, it's free. It just means that you now get to get all the episodes downloaded wherever you listen. As always, please remember to continue to share this with your family and friends. By the way, The Launch Club, if you guys have been following me for a bit, you know that I have The Launch Club. That's my membership community for people, for you, if you are enjoying this content to take it to the next level. So oftentimes in the Launch Club, we do Q&A sessions with guests and then speaker series slash masterclasses. And Ogechi is actually coming in the Launch Club to do one all about real estate. So I'm super excited for that. Launch Club doors are currently closed, but they will be reopening again in July. So you'll get access to This, If you're not a Launch Club member already, this recording with Ogechi, this class that we're doing and all the other classes that we do throughout the month and weeks when you join. So if you don't want to miss when doors open, go to journeytolaunch.com slash launch club. There you can join the waitlist. And when you join the waitlist, you're going to get special access and a preview of things. You're going to get basically, let's just say you'll get the in before anyone else. So make sure you're on the waitlist for the Launch Club journeytolaunch.com slash launch club. And as always, love having you on this journey with me. And until next time, keep on journeying, journeyers.